Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redeemer. My name is David, and I am the pastor. I have the privilege of being the pastor at this church. Today, we, of course, are going to read uh, an Easter text, one that looks at Rev's resurrection. And so if you brought your Bible, that's awesome. Uh, if you could turn uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to read uh, chapter 15, verses 19 through 26. If you didn't, there's a Bible in front of you. you can, if you got one on your phone, that's awesome. It's going to be on the screens as well. Um, I am there, so let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we are here uh, because Jesus is risen from the grave. And as we open up this living word in your scripture, I just pray that that life would jump out at us and speak to us and enliven our hearts and our minds to see fully how beautiful and how precious is the promise of resurrection in your son Jesus. And, and not only how beautiful and how precious, but how powerful is that promise to free us from the captivity of our sins and our bondage to death. And I just, I, I pray that um, as we proclaim that promise and that hope in the empty tomb today, that, that, um, that those chains would be broken in our life and we would walk into the wide horizons of your, your grace, Lord. It's in your holy name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> All right, verse 19, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to begin today with a question, maybe seemed like a little bit of a funny question um, when you see it, but what do Madonna, Justin Bieber, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Alicia Keys, and opening day home run hitter George Springer all have in common with one another? They all like jewelry. They all have crosses. I should have picked smaller crosses because I didn't want you to see that so fast. Um, they all have crosses. And, uh, of course, there's lots of people who wear crosses for lots of different reasons and in lots of different forms. And, uh, and it's not just necklaces that folks wear. A lot of people will wear uh, a cross bracelet. Um, uh, some people will wear a cross earring. Some of us have little tiny crosses that are so subtle that we don't ever see them, and then others of us are not so subtle in our choices of, of cross. <laughs> Happy Easter, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but uh, people wear all different kinds of crosses for all different kinds of reasons. 
And most of us will never, ever think twice if we see somebody wearing a cross. This is normal. This is something that we do today. Uh, But when you step back and you take a more historical perspective, uh, given what the cross originally represented, maybe it is something that we should think twice about or at least understand its origination. Because what would you think if today a friend showed up and they were wearing something like this? A noose necklace. A guillotine necklace. Or what about, what about this? Here's a beautiful electric chair necklace, right? This is the newest line from James Avery, available to anyone who would like it, right? <laughs> what, what would you say to that person? Like, what would you think? What kind of feelings would that bring up in you? And what I want to suggest to you is that what you would feel when you encountered that, what you would think, this is exactly what those people who originally looked at the cross would have felt, right? Because the cross was an ancient form of execution. It was an ancient electric chair. It was uh, a weapon of death. It's what one historian called Rome's choice weapon of state terror. It was a way to exact death for the na- for the, the, the empire of Rome that wasn't simply to end the life of a perpetrator, It was also designed specifically to strike the worst kind of fear in those who would see it. And so when a public crucifixion happened, and there were many, and they were always public, that was the point of a crucifixion, what the Roman Empire was saying to all those people who were subjugated by it, if you do not stay in line, this is the thing that is going to happen to you. The cross was, for them, a symbol of their domination. The cross, to them, reminded them of a a terrifying death. And what I'm going to do today is work through some Ds of death. And this is really the first one that I want to point out. Death is a tool of domination. Death has always been used as a tool of domination. If you study history's most infamous people, uh, they have always dominated and ruled with the weapon of death. For instance, Mao Zedong from the People's Republic of China, he built his empire on the graves. Uh, He's killed more than any other person in history, over 50 million Chinese people. He did it through mass repressions. I'm not sure if he was the first one to do this, but Mao set up execution quotas in order to keep people in line, to to keep a regular... uh, Uh, amount of people doing what he said, Uh, Mao, if he thought you were a dangerous thinker, would immediately end your life. Joseph Stalin uh, killed 23 million people or more. He's the second most in history, and the moment he stepped into power, uh, he created artificial famines to rule over the people in the Soviet empire that he wanted to make sure were under his thumb. And for those that survived those famines uh, that rose up against him, he then ran an initiative throughout the Union called the Great Purge, where he killed uh, so many other people. Probably history's most infamous tyrant is Adolf Hitler, at least from the the historical position that we sit in today. And um, 
Hitler, as, as you know, killed 17 million people, the third most in history. Five to six million of those were, were one specific race in the Jewish people and, and did it in horrible ways. And he actually um, is very interesting because Hitler wrote an autobiography. We have a window into the way that he thought uh, about death and the way that he did his dominating work. And it, it's in, a, in an autobiography called Mein Kampf, which means my fight. And I have read bits and pieces of it. And the bit that I read, man, this is one line that just stuck out to me to, to, to get a view of his mentality. He said this, the scream of 12-inch shrapnel is more penetrating than the hiss from a thousand Jewish newspaper vipers. Therefore, let them go on with their hissing, right? And so what he's saying is, you can, you can say and write all you want about me, but I have the most powerful weapon, and it's, it's 12-inch shrapnel. I'm going to kill you, right? This is how he thought about death. This is what he did with it. He dominated uh, people's lives. And, and, and uh, the reason that Hitler and Mao and Stalin and others have used death in this way is because it is probably the most powerful tool available to tyranny, right? Death is an incredibly powerful influencer of our actions. It has this ability to limit the things that we do, uh, not only because we simply grow up and recognize that if we don't act in a certain way, we may not have another day, but when wielded as a power to control our actions, what it can do is, is build uh, these walls around people's lives and keep them in line. It's like it builds this room around us and says, you cannot go any higher than this. You may not dig any lower than this, you may not step outside the boundaries of these walls. And that's what tyrants have done. And it's very interesting when you think about uh, the, the crucifixion narrative, immediately after Jesus is killed, you know what the disciples go and do? They all go and hide in a room. Gospel of John tells us that they go hide in a room and they lock the door from the inside because they were known associates of Jesus and they were terrified of the fear of death, that the same thing would happen to them that happened to, to Jesus. But tyrants uh, don't only dominate with death. It's important to recognize that, that they themselves are ruled by death. Tyrants wield death's power, but it is a power beyond the tyrant, beyond their own do domination. And that's why Mao and Stittler and Stalin and Hitler-Stittler, that is a Stalin-Hitler combo. Um, <laughs> that's why Mao and Stalin and Hitler are all gone, and death still <laughs> remains. Um, there's this quote by a man named Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan and reflected on death. And, um, and, he, and he said this, death is the greatest monarch and the most ancient king of the whole world. And what he is saying is death ultimately wins all these battles. Even if you try to yield it, it's going to take control of you. And this is where I want to get into the second D of death this morning. Death isn't just a tool of domination. It's a universal dilemma. Death is a universal dilemma. There is no one who ever escapes the problem of death. And do you realize that uh, for all of us sitting here in the room this morning, there is probably not a single one of us who is going to be alive in 100 years. Probably 90. You know, most of the kids have left. Maybe 50, you know. Uh, there will be uh, those of us who are alive in 50 years. But th that, that's a sobering reality. And, you know, statistically speaking, there are a number of us that will not be here in 10 years. In, in a decade, death is something 
that every breath we breathe, we are one breath closer to. It's an endpoint. It's a hard stop on, on our lives. My son told me last week that I'm only going to get slower and uglier, uglier from this point on. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of a, a joke, but he's probably closer to the tooth than he realizes or I wanted him to be. Um, and, and what I do, and I'm sure I think a lot of y'all do too, when you think about death, is we try to deny it. We try to uh, not think about it. Uh, or, or some people have even tried to think of ways that they can delay it, right? There's another D of death. People delay it. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen this, but there is no shortage of incredible minds and incredible money right now that is being thrown at the object of defying death. 2013, Time Magazine a cover said, can Google solve death? It was something that Google set out to do. Google's pretty amazing, right? They are amazing. I've given them my email and my phone and all these other things they are taking that I don't know about, right? So they know that they're awesome and they're probably like, why not? Why not? Why can't we solve death? And so this is what Google did. They started a subsidiary company called Calico and their mission is no less, and I quote, to alter the basic nature of human existence. Google, wow, right? That is an incredible goal. There's another um, thing that's happening led by an MIT professor who's brilliant named Max Tegmark, and he's working on an idea called Life 3.0, and uh, he leads an institute, lots of funding for this, and what they are trying to do is um, essentially um, blend human physiology with artificial intelligence. So basically create... Um, robo-people, right, um, that would be able to defy death longer because we don't have limbs and aging and, and organs in the same way. And Tegmark is seriously considering the, the sci-fi idea of RoboCop, right? I mean, he is trying to make the, the, this happen. Um, you guys know Larry King from the television show? He recently decided he was going to defy death by having his body cryogenically frozen uh, in hopes that whatever kills him could be cured at some future point. He's not the first one to do this. You guys know Ted Williams for has frozen his body. Uh, it's actually not true. Walt Disney did not freeze his body. I fact-checked this, but I do know that this fellow once did it, and it seemed to have worked for him. Um, <laughs> that's a great scene in that movie. Um, I know I, uh, I'm poking fun of that a little, um, and I, I want to say in some ways it is unfair because I do think it's, it's wonderful and incredible that God gives us minds and we could apply those minds to figuring out how to expand the boundaries of our current experience of death, right? Wouldn't it be good to live longer and richer and fuller lives that would not experience aging? Those are wonderful things, but I also want to say that ultimately, I think that even if we could defy our current experiences of death, I don't think that we could ever fully overcome this problem and this approach. And, and, and when we begin to believe that we can, that death is something that we, we could um, figure out and, and, and defy, I think what happens is that death actually becomes a distraction. And that's the third D of death I want to share with you. Death is a distraction. Hang with me here. I know that sounds strange, but I, I, I want you to understand what I'm saying. One of the greatest tricks 
of the enemy, according to the Bible, is to have us working over here against something when the real battle is, is right here, right? So we have a sword waving in front of our face. You know, you have the old trick of the, of the monkey that's dancing, and all the while, someone has come up behind us and picked our pockets. And when you think about a biblical understanding of what death is, uh, it actually can be a distraction because death isn't the core problem. Death is the result of the core problem, and the core problem in the scripture is identified as sin, right? And this is where actually we start to understand the gospel because we begin to understand the, the, the real nature of the problem. Have you ever asked the question, why is there death in the world? Have you ever wondered about that? Why, why do things die? Or, or how about this, should there be death? in the world. You know, every kid at one point actually asks that question, why do people have to die? And we just kind of accept it as a reality. Um, but I am not so sure that we should. Think back to our scripture from 1 Corinthians 15 that we read. Paul says, death came through a man. Later he says, in Adam all die. What I really want you to observe about that is he says, death came. Death came, right? For something to come it implies that at another point, it was not there. If a cat comes into the room, there was a time when that cat was not in the room. And so if death came, what Paul is implying is that there was a time before death was. And in fact, if you study the scripture, the Bible goes further and not only says that, but it says there was a time before death when humans were and death wasn't, right? And that's in the very first origin story that we read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Do you realize, and I'd encourage you to go back and look through this, that in Genesis 1 and 2, human beings are created. Adam and Eve are given life, and there is no indication that they are ever going to die. It's not, it's not there. It's a reality that we don't even think to, 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 to ask about as adults, but in this scripture, it's not there. You, you, you will not find it. Uh, and there is no reason to believe in reading those chapters that God's original intent for humanity was anything but life. There was no death that was part of God's plan originally for you and me. God made human beings to live, period. Period. So should there be death, right? Genesis 1 and 2 would say, no, there, there was never death intended for us. So where did death come from? That's the question that emerges. Well, another reason that we know Adam and Eve were not originally experiencing death is because of what God says to them in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 17, the first time the word death is ever used in the, in the Bible, long after the creation events have occurred, and it's given as a consequence for disobeying God and eating the fruit from the knowledge, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says this, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, that is when you will surely die. It's the first mention of death. It's the result of this action, eating the fruit of the tree. And, and, and if you don't know the rest of the story in Genesis, uh, what happens is that they do. They disobey God. They decide to eat that, that fruit, and why, they answer the question, why is there death in the world? The answer is simply, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they ate from the fruit of that, of that tree. So why did they choose to do that? It's because 
according to the scripture, Adam and Eve, like you and me, have something in their hearts called sin, right? Sin is this thing that, that, that puts us ahead of God and makes us choose to disobey God's commands and even rebel against the order of creation itself. And sin is talked about in so many ways and in so many metaphors in, in, in the Bible. But uh, if, if I could boil it down to its simplest form, it's what, I al- it's what I already said this morning. Sin is putting our will above God's perfect will. Sin is when we choose our way over God's perfect way. That's what sin is. When I say me first, me at the center, when the created one says to the one who created it, I'm doing this my way. I've got this, right? And, 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 and you know, what we probably don't realize when we read Genesis um, is that it wasn't, when God said don't eat from the, the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, that's not about like just knowing and understanding what's, what's right and what's wrong. That actually is an image for deciding, for t- determining, for saying, God, I know better than you what is right and what's wrong. I want to rule that. I want to have that power. I want to have that understanding. So you're not just saying, oh, uh, I, I'm going to understand good and evil. No, you're saying, I'm defining good and evil. And that is what happens when we, the created ones, step into the place of the one who created us. We are trying to be God. We are trying to take God's role. We say, I know better than you. I got this, right? And, and what happens when that, when, when that happens is the world that was designed to work under the commanding and, and, and design of God no longer works the way that it should because we're trying to rule it and control it the way it was never intended to be, right? And, and, and that's what happens when we say to God, I got this. I, I'm going to do this my way. You know, uh, earlier this, this week, I was cutting strawberries up for my sons, and the youngest boy, Johnny, got his stool and got right up next to me on the cutting board and was like, Daddy, I want to cut strawberries. I'm using a knife. Like, he's four. Like, like, son, I'm sorry. You know, no. And so I'm cutting. He goes, Daddy, please, 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 Daddy, please, 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 please. And I had a knife in my hand, right? So I said, leave me alone, boy. No, I said, I said, Johnny, um... Actually, I did, I did what a lot of excellent parents do in that, in that moment. I said, whatever. Um, I pulled the butter knife out of the, out of the drawer, and I gave it to Johnny. And I let him cut strawberries, and I hounded over him the whole time trying to keep him from, of course, hurting himself. And he kept insisting on getting his hands in there and doing it his way like he knew better than Dad. And guess what happened? You can cut yourself with a butter knife, Right? <laughs> And, and that's, this is what happens when we insist on our way. Like, things break, blood is shed, and what the, what the Scripture says is this happened in cosmic terms. We tried to control the universe, and the universe broke. The world got messed up. Thorns and thistles came up from the ground. Husband and wife pointed finger at one another. One generation, brother, goes on to take the life of his own brother. We brought death into the world. Death came through Adam. That's what the scripture is saying. And to understand this relationship between sin and death, it is probably most clearly laid out in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Notice the relationship between sin and death in that, in that sentence. Death 
is the wages, the result, the penalty, the cost. But it's not the root problem. It's the consequence. Sin is the root problem. Sin is the core issue. Sin is the thing that exists in the heart of man, and death was the result of man acting on that sin. And this is why Paul says, death came through a man, and in Adam all men die, because we all live under this power of sin. We all, like Adam, have allowed sin to have its dominion in our lives, right? So, so that's why there's death in the world. And it wasn't part of God's plan. And that's why the Easter story is so beautiful because it takes what was broken and it begins to turn it around. This is Easter. The story doesn't end with death ruling and having dominion and power over us, does it? Right? On the cross, we believe that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. If death is the consequence of sin, now think about this. You may not have ever thought about it so clearly. What does Jesus go to do on the cross. If death is the consequence of sin, what does Jesus do on the cross? He dies. He takes all the consequences of human sin upon himself. He pays the penalty and, and, and dies in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin. God made Jesus who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that in Christ Jesus, we are made right. We have a right relationship with God. That's what righteousness means. And so what Jesus does in dying on the cross for our sins is give the opportunity for us to be forgiven, to say your sins have been forgiven, the penalty has been paid. But see, here's the thing, that's only half the story right? That is a beautiful, incredible thing. But Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead at the beginning of the passage we read, we are of all people to be pitied, right? Because there's got to be more than this. Because if our sins are forgiven and we're still all in our graves, you know, what, what does that leave us with at the end, right? We're still under the dominion and the power of, of death. But you see, this is where the empty tomb brings it all home because Paul doesn't end this in our passage by just saying, in Adam all men die. What does he say next? In Christ we all live, right? For as in Adam all, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul says death came through a man, but then what does he say? For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a, a man. And what is he talking about? He is talking about Jesus. He's saying what happened in Jesus' resurrection was that the power of sin was broken. And because sin does not have any dominion over you, death will no longer defeat you. Right? You see that? Because sin is not holding its grip on your life. Death no longer gets the last word on what happens to you. This weapon has been defeated. It says Christ has destroyed all authority and power and dominion and put it under his feet. And so Easter is about a cosmic victory of Christ over death, over the power of our sin, and giving us these precious and incredible promises that absolutely change the way that we see and operate in the world today. Christians, let me be clear in proclaiming these Easter promises. When Jesus died on the cross, you were saved from your sins. Jesus forgave you when he, God forgave you when he laid the sins that you did on the shoulders of Jesus and he died. By accepting Christ, 
that curse of sin over your life is broken, right? But, but what, what then happens is not only that sin's power is broken, it means that when you die, it's, it's, there, there's more to this story. You are not going to be dead and forever in that grave. Because Christ has risen, you will rise too. You have the promises of God that death's dominion will not be power over your life, that Jesus has broken that power, that sting, there is no sting of death, there is no victory. The victory belongs to our Lord and Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? All right. I, I want to close here with uh, a quote from a man who I think brings all this together, not only in understanding death from a biblical perspective, the way that I think we should aim to see death, but also um, who, who, who did it in such beautiful terms and actually paid for it with his life. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? And, and during the Nazi era, era in Germany, Bonhoeffer actually first left uh, to, to save his life. Um, and then later, on his own accord, fully knowing that he was facing the threat of death, walked back into Germany to lead uh, what was known as the Confessing Christian Movement in this nation. These were people who were standing up to all of the very non-Christian, horrible things that Hitler was doing. And um, Bonhoeffer uh, went back, and it wasn't too long after his return to Germany that he was killed. You know, they identified him, they took him, uh, and they executed him. And, um, and the thing that I love about Bonhoeffer, uh, not only did he write a lot of incredible things, but when that man died, there were those who saw him and said he died with the grin of Easter on his face, right? And so I just want to read some of these things, and I hope they'll anchor themselves in your, in your heart as you just see a person who speaks about death so differently. He says this, no one has believed, yet believed in God, and heard about the realm of the resurrected, and not been homesick for that hour. Whether we are young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows how near, or she, how near he or she may already be to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That is all that is, that all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike for all of us to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter. If we have not become bitter ourselves, death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. How do we know the dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. If Christ is not risen, death is hell and night and cold. But that is what is so marvelous, right? Christ has transformed death. Those are the words of a dying man. Let them anchor themselves in your heart. Let the, the hope of resurrection be the hope of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we, we don't have to be fearful of that day that is coming, that we don't have to shiver in the room of, of the fear of death, but can walk out 
um, knowing that with the hope and the promise of eternal life, there are wide horizons in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just pray that that perspective of eternity would bleed into our lives and our experience of life here and now so that we would know it's true that your son rose from the dead and in his rising it was the promise of resurrection for all who would count their lives with his. Lord, and we count our lives with him this morning and we put our hope and our trust and our faith in in Jesus' name who is risen. Amen.